If you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 5. As I mentioned a few moments ago, we are back in the Psalms pretty much for the rest of the summer as they make uh, good standalone um, sermons, but also they um, serve to get us back into a central part of God's Word, the 150 chapters we know as the book of Psalms. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give You thanks for Your Word and for Your Spirit. Father, would Your Word and Spirit have their way with Your gathered people now? Would You open our eyes to see the truth, open our ears to hear the truth, open our minds to know the truth, open our hearts to receive the truth, and strengthen our hands and feet to live in light of Your revealed will? Father, we give You thanks for Your Word. Enable us to hear it, to believe it, and to obey. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are number five in a sermon series uh, that matches up with indeed the number of the psalm. Psalm 5, 150 psalms. Divided into five books, they're at once familiar and at times foreign, written over a period of 12 centuries, from the 15th century to the 3rd century B.C. These are songs and prayers offered to God by Israel. And did you notice what you all did in singing hymn number 51 in the Trinity Hymnal? Do you all know what you just did? You sang Psalm 5. Songs and prayers offered to God by His people. It's the hymn and prayer book of the church. These 150 psalms are diverse yet unified because they're centered upon the one and only living God and they capture over and over again the divine human encounter. Children, you'll notice as you look at the psalms, it doesn't look like Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is written in narrative form. It looks, like a, it looks like a book here. It looks like poetry. And indeed, it is poetry where we are forced to slow down, to think, to consider. And indeed, the Psalms help us as they inform our intellect. They arouse our emotions. They direct our wills and they stimulate our imaginations. And when we read the Psalms with faith, did you hear that? Because your unbelieving friends can read the Psalms. But they can't read the Psalms by faith, with faith. But here, if we read the Psalms with faith, we come away not just informed, as good and necessary as that is, but we come away through God's kindness and mercy and the work of the Holy Spirit, we come away transformed, even if just a little bit. The Psalms and worship. We just sang Psalm 5. We practice here inclusive psalmody. We don't practice exclusive. We're always singing is Psalms. But we, by God's grace, will always be inclusive. We will include the Psalms as we connect with the church past, present, and future. The Psalms and worship helped us See, as we looked at John chapter 4 a number of years ago, that true worship is biblically grounded and guided. 
It's God-focused, it's Christ-centered, and it's Spirit-enabled. And the Psalms before us promote not just corporate worship here on the Lord's Day, but also all of life worship, as I believe we will see. Here we are on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. Is your tank on empty this morning? Corporate worship will help us refuel. Are you lost this morning? Lost and confused? Corporate worship will help us return. Are you scattered today? Corporate worship will help us refocus. Because in corporate worship, it's where God has announced that his means of grace are most centrally located and concentrated. Worship changes us from who we were to who we will one day be and who we are becoming. And one day we will fully be. Corporate worship on the Lord's Day is the fuel for all of life worship. It is the anchor and the engine of a life of worship. Worship reorients us and realigns us. Now, what do I mean? Uh, You hear those words, reorient and realign. What do I mean? Well, worship as reorientation. Here we're looking at the case of false gods. It's moving from unbeliever to believer. Now, you may think, wait, that just happens once. Well, no, you remember the prayer from Mark, I believe, help my unbelief. We are all still battling the temptation to worship false gods. We are going to be reoriented to worship the true and living God through corporate worship. But we're also going to be realigned. And what does that mean? It means, okay, worship of the true God, but false worship of the true God. And so corporate worship here on the Lord's Day helps the growing and maturing believer. Not just be reoriented, but realigned. You've seen our postcard. To be human is to worship. Who or what are you worshiping? I remember sharing that statement with someone um, at GA, and they said, wow, uh, what a great question to ask other people. I'm thinking, it's a great question to ask ourselves. Who or what are we worshiping? It's the ultimate question inward and for others as we look outward to reach them with the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, let's move into Psalm 5, and I want to start with a few um, thoughts. We live in the information age, don't we? IT, information technology. Um, Don't stand if I ask this question, but a number of you are in the information technology world. We live in the age of information, but you know what we also live in? The age of misinformation. And recently... Those of you who pay attention to the news may have heard this expression. We are in the era of fake news, so to speak. And so the Christians are, and the church is called to set the biblical record straight as we announce news, good news, that is anything but fake. And one glaring example of fake news, and I saw it the other day, is a book 
that continues to sell copy after copy entitled what? Your best life now. Really? Your best life now? The Christian life, as you examine the pages of Scripture, is one of suffering, difficulty, and trouble. Remember John 16, where Jesus is talking to his disciples before his death, and he says, in the world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. Now, we don't have to look very far, do we? Over the past year, over the past week, over the past day, many of you have experienced trouble, trials, suffering. So let me ask you this question. Where do you find refuge, shelter, relief from the trials, from the difficulty, from the suffering? Christians are those people who we will see in our text are people who take refuge where? In the Lord. In the Lord. At breakfast yesterday, the men's prayer breakfast, we started off our time singing hymn 95 in the Trinity hymnal, Though Troubles Assail Us. And here is the last verse of this hymn by John Newton. Though no strength of our own and no goodness we claim, yet since we have known of the Savior's great name, in this our strong tower for safety we hide, the Lord is our power, the Lord will provide. No strength of our own, no goodness we claim, we hide in the Lord. We take refuge in the Lord. Well, let's go now to Psalm 5 where we will see the psalmist talking about taking refuge in the Lord through prayer. Our approach to the text today will be to ask four questions of the text. Now remember, Bible study is pretty simple, right? Observe the text, interpret the text, and apply the text. Observe, interpret, and apply. Or framed like this, what does it say? What does it mean? And how do I put it into practice? Well, let's turn now to our text, this psalm, this prayer of David, and ask a few questions of the text, beginning with this question from verses 1 through 3. What does David do? Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you... Do I pray? O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. What does David do? He prays. What's the situation? David is in a hostile world. We will see that he is in trouble because of his enemies. His friends are mocking him. But for David, the biggest reality is not the voices, the threats, the treatment from his enemies. Rather, the biggest reality for David is the voice, the promise, the treatment of God. Here, David shows us the reality of the Lord, the reality of God. People can believe it or not. They can like it or not. 
but there is the reality of the God who is. As we talked about multiple times in our Sunday school class, the truth of God can be exchanged, the truth of God can be suppressed, but the truth of God cannot be totally eliminated. No, He is the God who is there. And therefore, David looks not outward to his enemies, nor does he look inward to himself. Rather, he looks upward to the reality, to God. And we see the priority of prayer. What goes without saying should be said. Notice how David leads this song. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. For to you do I pray. David leads with prayer. In the Navy, um, when I was officer of the deck on a destroyer or watching over the engineering plant down below, we had to have certain things memorized so that we did things by instinct. There was no time to look up the book. You had to, as it were, have the book memorized. And those, I guess, John and Paxton pilots who aren't here with us today, they know that when there's a situation in the air, they have to, to go with instinct, trained instinct, immediate actions. And David's trained instinct is to pray. Is that your instinct right now? To pray? Or do you get around to prayer after everything else is attempted and tried? Notice this description of prayer. My words, my groaning, my cry. And there's an, ex an escalation of desperation. And notice the object of prayer, the Lord, my King, my God. There are a lot of personal pronouns here. Kids, my, mine. It's okay to use personal pronouns here. It's a covenant relationship. It's the believer's relationship with God. It is personal. My God, my groaning, my King, my cry. This is not abstract. This is personal. Notice at times, or David and us at times are in such difficult circumstances that prayer is inaudible. We can't get the words up, words out. It's just a matter of looking up. Friends, when you're going through difficulties and you can't express the inner groanings of your heart. Scripture is clear. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us. Jesus Himself is interceding for us. Sometimes all we can do is look up. Look up. And notice the time of prayer. In the morning. He says that twice. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century English pastor in London, said this, Prayer should be the key of the day and the lock of the night. Devotion should be both the morning and the evening star. Did you hear that? The key of the day and the lock of the night. In these first few Psalms, some can see a morning prayer and an evening prayer. This is a morning prayer. Psalm 4 was an evening prayer. It's the key to the day. David is saying, before I head out into a hostile world, 
where there's the world, the flesh, and the devil, I am going to prepare a sacrifice for you, or I am going to direct my prayer to you. He is watching. He is watching and waiting. There is a confident expectation. Today, we are impatient. We can't wait until the afternoon newspaper arrives like it used to in the past. No, it's instantaneous. And yet David is watching and he is waiting. Again, in the morning, in the morning, my friends, do you get up in the morning or do you look up in the morning? In the morning, do you get up or do you get down on your knees? Well, if we're honest, if I look in the mirror, I'm more concerned about getting up and getting going, sadly, than at times getting down, bowing my heart before the Lord at the beginning of the day. But this is what David does. What does he do? He prays. And what happens as he prays? What does he see? What does David see? In a word, I think we'll see he sees the holiness of God. Look at with me at verses 4 through 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. David here sees three things. First and foremost, he sees the character of God. God is holy. God is not indifferent to sin. I believe that verse 4 may be the most under, is the understatement of the Psalms. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Are you kidding? God hates sin. And as we will see here, much to many people's surprise, God hates the sinner. God is not absent, nor has He lost interest in what is going on. God is not the God of moralistic, therapeutic deism. He is actively involved and notice the progression. He doesn't delight. He doesn't dwell. He hates. He destroys. He abhors. David here sees not only the character of God, that God is holy. He sees the character of man. Man is sinful. Wickedness. Evil. Evildoers. Liars. Bloodthirsty. Deceitful. Boastful. What does he say? They shall not stand. Why? Because they are worshiping themselves. Paul would later say in Roman, or one of his letters that he boasts only in the Lord. And because God is holy and man is sinful, David also sees as he's praying that man, that even David has a big problem. Man is in trouble, not just because of the sinful world, his own flesh, and the devil, but man is in trouble with God. As I mentioned a moment ago, we're all familiar with the expression, you know, it's important for us to, to love the sinner and hate the sin. Absolutely. Love those captured by the enemy of God. Love them. Share the gospel with them. 
help them put sin to death. Love the sinner, hate the sin. But here, it's pretty clear of God's attitude, not just toward wickedness, but the wicked. Who's punished? Let me ask you this. Um, Someone goes to, to court. Who's punished? Is the crime punished? Who's punished? The criminal is punished. Um, Is sin punished? No, the sinner is punished. And, you know, why is the good news good? Because it takes place in the context of the bad news. My friends, this is really life-changing news. God's attitude towards sin. And so this is the one essential question to ask. Can this problem between God and man be solved? And if so, how? What does David do? He's praying. And what does he see? He sees the holiness of God. He sees man's sin. He sees the big problem. And therefore, what does God, what does David promise? What does he promise in view of this? Look at verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. What does, God, what does David promise here in his prayer? He promises to worship God publicly. Here's the outward action. I'm going to worship God publicly. David contrasts himself with others, but I, but I, I love the shorter catechism. I love the larger catechism. I love our confession of faith. Why? Because they, I believe, accurately summarize and, and, and capture what Scripture teaches. But I also love our children's catechism, the first catechism. Because question 129 says this, Why did Christ appoint these sacraments? And the answer is this, to distinguish His people from the world and to comfort and strengthen them. To distinguish His people from the world. Here David is being distinguished from the unbelieving, wicked world. He's entering the house of God. Now, children, what did David see as God's essential character just a moment ago? What was it? It, God is holy. Well, here we see that holiness, God's holiness, is like a magnet. You guys have seen a magnet, right? What does a magnet do on one side, so to speak? What does it do? It pulls other objects toward it, right? You flip it around, what does it do? It pushes objects away. It's like the holiness of God. It's attractive to some, and it repels others. It attracts and it repels. Here David, because he is attracted to God's holiness, he is attracted to public worship. If you are attracted to to God's holiness, David is saying, then you will be attracted to public worship. But that's the outward action, to worship God publicly. But the outward action is only because there is an inward motivation, an inward ability. Look with me at verse 7 again. But I, through the abundance of your what? Your steadfast 
love. The abundance of your steadfast love. David is saying that is the entrance into the house of God. That is the entrance into the sanctuary. That is the entrance into the presence of God. A multitude of mercies. God's covenant faithfulness. God's loyalty that's everlasting. David is saying that he is different. And hear this. David is saying he is different from everyone else around him, the wicked. Only because of grace. Only because of mercy. How can this problem be solved? Put differently, how can a sinner come into the presence of a holy God? Turn over with me to Psalm 24. Just a few psalms down the road. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in His holy place? Great question. Here's the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Turn back to Psalm 15. We won't read the whole psalm, but it asks the same question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth, not just outwardly and publicly, but in his heart. My friends, the solution to man's biggest problem, the solution to your and my biggest problem is God's mercy. God's mercy. And we see, as we sang earlier, that God's mercy, justice, love meet at the cross. Indeed, as was read from Hebrews 10 a few minutes ago, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the righteous life we live. Is that what we read? We have confidence to enter into God's presence by, hey, we've done more good than bad. No, it is one thing by the blood of Jesus that we draw near. Here is David praying in private, leading to his desire to worship in public. Private prayer, private family worship doesn't excuse or take the place of public worship, but rather it prepares for public worship. You want to know how to be prepared on a Sunday morning? Prepare all week. Read God's Word. Pray. Enjoy fellowship with God's people. Talk to unbelieving friends about Jesus. That's how you prepare for worship. Private prayer leads to public worship. Yes, we are saved individually, but we are gathered and we grow corporately. Soldiers are brought into an army. Sheep are brought into a flock. Christians are gathered into the church. So David prays. He sees both God's holiness, man's sin, and his biggest problem. He promises and then he asks. Well, for what does David ask? We see it in the last verses, verses 8 through 12. 
Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. They make, make them hear their, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous. O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. Here we see David ask. He petitions God on behalf of three sets of people. First, himself. Verse 8, to be guided. Notice again the importance of pronouns. Lead me O Lord, in your righteousness, make your way straight before me. David is praying for himself. David is also praying for his enemies. He's praying for himself that he would be guided and he's praying for his enemies to be ruined. Now, wait a minute. Would this... Is this, if this prayer was on the floor of presbytery, would a presbyter ask the moderator, um, I would like this to be ruled out of order? Is this a good prayer? Is this a right prayer? Should this be ruled out of order? Did David make a mistake? In a word, no. Not at all. This is the first instance in the Psalms of an imprecation. It's an imprecatory psalm. It's a verse of imprecation. Help me out. Imprecation. David is asking for a curse. He's asking that God to do what God has promised to do. To expose and punish sin and sinners. He leaves the action to God. This is not personal vengeance. This is motivated by sin against God. Remember Jesus? He entrusted Himself to the One who judges justly. Here, David is looking to God to judge justly. My friends, consider this, that this psalm, these verses, this verse occurs in a public worship setting, a, the singing of a psalm. This is mercy to sinners, because you know what this is? It's a warning. We had some car trouble on our trip in North Carolina. And unfortunately, the dashboard did not give us the warning that we needed. The vibrating engine gave us the warning. The light should have come on. This is a warning, and my friends in Scripture, this is God's mercy. How many of you all want to be warned of danger? 
How many of you all want your friends to be warned of danger? It's God's mercy. It's His kindness that it's here. David prays for himself to be guided. He prays for his enemies, really God's enemies, to be ruined. And he prays finally for his fellow believers to be blessed. Able to rejoice, to sing, and exult. Just like Hannah prayed. Did you catch what Hannah prayed? Exalt God, destroy enemies, lift up God, put down evil. She and David are singing off the same sheet of music. Well, we need to wrap up. We see that the world here is divided into two kinds of people. The friends and the enemies of God. Those, in other words, who take refuge in God and those who refuse to take refuge in God. Those of you that have been with us for a while remember that sermon series where we saw that the Christian life is the battle we face, the weakness we possess, and the strength God provides. Is Christianity for weak people? Yes. Is Christianity a crutch? No. Is it a wheelchair? No, because you can still often push yourself in the wheelchair. Christianity is a stretcher. We are carried. The strongest Christian is the person who takes refuge in the Lord. No goodness we claim, no strength of our own. We run to the Lord. Remember John 16:33, in this world you'll have trouble. What else did Jesus say? In me, you'll have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. In me, you'll have peace. God has taken hold of us through His mercy, through the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit. And we, David wants us to see, we take hold of God. We Take refuge in the Lord through prayer, as Psalm 5 makes clear. In this day and age of misinformation and fake news about finding your best life now through the pursuit of pleasure, power, and possessions, when the inescapable reality of trouble makes itself known, where do you take refuge? Where do you find shelter? My friends, God is calling us to take refuge in the Son who through His death took from you the ultimate trouble that you deserve for your sin and He gives to you the ultimate blessing of eternal fellowship with God the Father that He deserved through His life of perfect obedience. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, find your rest and refuge in the abundance of God's steadfast love. Find your rest and take refuge in Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for how realistic your word is. Your word presents bad news 
good news. It presents our sin and the Savior. It presents you as a holy and awesome God who does not mess around with sin. Oh God, would you give us a hatred of sin and in doing so, give us a growing love for the one who washes our sin away. Both the guilt and he continues to subdue the power. Oh, Father, help us all to find our refuge in you through prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. They both respond to what we have heard.